What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Been a minute since we sat down with today's guest, and I'm very happy that we did. Sat down with George Gammon again to talk about whether or not the last two years almost now, it's been about public health or control over the public. What is the intention behind everything going on? Do they really care about you? Are they really looking after your health, or are they looking to clamp down on control? We dive into that, why Bitcoin is so important. I know a lot of you think George isn't a Bitcoin guy, but I think this episode may change your mind on that. Bitcoin is free to money, and it is imperative as we continue to transition into the digital age, and as we continue to bump up against Orwellian governments who want to seize more and more and more control over your life. Do you guys don't like this rip? It was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App, so you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats, if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard. There's 100 million sats in one whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can buy whole sats instead. And the Cash App makes that very easy. You can DCA in the sats. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly, set it and forget it, set a set amount of dollar amount of Bitcoin you'd like to purchase on one of those cadences and Cash App sets it and forgets it. Cash App can even be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers, which allow you to get your paychecks direct deposited into the app. They have their cash card, which is accepted anywhere. Visa is accepted. Uh, it comes with their boost program. It allows you to get cash back and sometimes sats back uh, when you shop at partner merchants. Go check all this out if you haven't already. Download the Cash App using the code StackingSats, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! 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 Owls Lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is here to get more individuals into the mining game. They want to distribute the ownership of hash rate production more granularly. That means getting miners into more hands of more individuals. Compass makes this very easy. You go to compassmining.io. They're going to have ASICs available for you to purchase. You pick the model that you like, the terahash per second produced by that model that you like, the price point that you like. Yeah, you purchase your miner. And then you can do many things with it. You can have it sent to your home, sent to yourself. You own the miner. It is your miner. So you can have it sent directly to you. Uh, you can plug it in and an electricity source of your choosing if you like. Uh, however, if you don't have access to very competitive electricity cost, Compass is also working on that as well by setting up these hosting deals with hosting partners and allow you to plug in at competitive electricity rates. So you'll be able to buy a miner via Compass, and then pick a hosting facility with competitive electricity rates to plug it in. And then you have sats sent streamed to a wallet of your choice. And again, you own that miner. So if you ever have it at a hosting facility and just find cheaper energy at your home or somewhere in your, your neighborhood where you just want to have the mine in your possession for, for reasons, you can always call it in kind have it sent from the hosting facility and mailed directly to you. So if you guys are interested in exploring the mining world, want to play around with it, check out Compass. Compass Mining. C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Go check them out. They're doing incredible stuff. Last but not least, this rip is brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains Systems. 
It's a team behind Slush Pool. It's the oldest running mining pool in the world, founded in 2010 with over 1.25 million Bitcoin mined in its lifetime. They've been operating Slush Pool, Brains has, since 2013, uh, where they took over a majority stake from Slush. They purchased the rest of that stake last summer, and they're always working on improvements to Slush Pool, including the big upgrade that happened earlier this summer, which includes ultra-flexible payouts that can either be time-based or threshold-based, mining reward splitting for automatically distributing rewards to multiple wallets, and of course, Dark Theme. So all this can be easy on your eyes. Brains is a Bitcoiner company through and through, and they're working on some of the most unique and cutting-edge projects in the mining industry, including Brains OS Plus, auto-tuning firmware, and Stratum V2, which is a mining protocol that's going to help decentralize mining a bit more. And they're hiring. Great team to work for. I would kill to work for this team if I had the uh, the engineering prowess to do so. So if you're a Rust developer, a systems programmer, if you have experience with embedded devices, there may be a place for you to join the team at Brains. Check out brains.com slash careers to see open positions and submit an application. That's brains with two Y's, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com slash careers. As for the big question, when what's minor, the answer is still soon, TM. But the team is making steady progress, and Brains OS Plus firmware is running smoothly on machines in the Brains offices. I'm very excited to hear this. I'd like to see it running outside the offices. Meanwhile, Jan, who was on TFTC episode number 73, along with Pavel from Brain System, has been grinding away and adding support for the Antminer X19 generation, and that is progressing into private testing. That means at least, at least... Some models from the X19 generation will be supported before what's miners, but no exact ETA yet on the public release. Currently supported devices are the Antminer S9, S9i, S9j, as well as the S17, S17 Plus, S17 Pro, T17, T17 Plus, and the other ones that were added earlier this summer, the S17e and T17e. Have to put all this with a public service announcement. If you're running Brains OS Plus firmware on your machines, you do not have to point them at Slush Pool. You can point them at any mining pool that you want to. You can point your hash at any mining pool that you want to. There's a misconception out there that if you're running Brains OS Plus, you have to point your hash at Slush Pool. This isn't the case. However, if you do want to point your hash at Slush Pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees, which is a nice little incentive there. If you want to get unique insights on the Bitcoin mining industry, along with the updates on Brains OS Plus, Stratum V2, and other Brains projects, check out the Brains blog at brains.com slash blog and follow the lesser known but high quality High signal to noise ratio at brains underscore systems Twitter account where the team is posting deep dive threads on various mining topics. Again, make sure you remember that it's brains with two eyes. Brains, B R A I I N S. Go check it all out and enjoy this episode with George Gammon. It was a pleasure getting back together with him and talking about the state of the world. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent sitting here with George Gammon. George, is this about control or, or health and safety? What is this all about? We're talking about Uber and mask and, and all that stuff. Well, I know definitively it's not about health and safety. Uh, I would assume 
that it's about control, power, uh, micromanaging your daily life. I think it has a lot to do with uh, something psychologists refer to as the foot in the front door theory. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically what they did is they, I think it was in California, took a group of people, homeowners, and they uh, took one third of them. They didn't ask them to do anything first. The next group, they asked them to sign a petition. Uh, I think it was for people speeding in the neighborhood or something like that. And then the next, then the last group, they asked them to put a small sign in the front yard to encourage people to drive slowly. Then what they did is they took the group of people who they didn't ask to do anything. They took the group of people that agreed to the petition. Then they took the group of people that agreed to put the small sign. They wanted some sort of control group there to differentiate between people who just had a request or, a, or agreed to a request and people who agreed to a request similar to the big request that came second. Okay, And that was, hey, can you please put this giant sign in your front yard encouraging people to slow down? So the group that they didn't ask to do anything up front, less than 20% of those people agreed to put the big sign in their front yard. Of the group who said yes to the petition, 55% said yes to the big sign. And the group who agreed to the small sign, 76% agreed to the big sign. So what this tells us, and if I'm, if, if your uh, audience has any digital marketers in it, they, they already know this very, very well, that if you get someone to agree to something small up front, uh, say, you know, here's my free book. All you have to do is pay for shipping. Or, I mean, we even do it with, uh, with Rebel Capitals Pro, you know, my online uh, investment forum where my digital marketing guy, Gene, gives people a one-week uh, trial offer for a dollar. And it's a, a you know, similar type of concept there. That if you get someone to do something very small, it's much easier or the probability that they agree to something much bigger increases significantly. So every single time you get them to do something incrementally larger, there's a higher percentage that they continue to agree. That's the bottom line. So think about what we've done in 2020, or we meaning the government and the central planners. Right? The first thing they did, they come out and they said, well, let's just say, I, I forgot the how it came as far as in order because I was, in, I was not in the United States, I was in Medellin. But let's say uh, initially they said, okay, well, we need you to wear a mask. Okay, well, that's a, a small ask. And then, well, actually, you know, you, you agree to that. So now we need to lock you in your house and not let you leave. Okay. And, and now that you agree to that, now we need you to close down your business. Okay. Well, now we need you to wear five masks. Okay. Well, now we need you to inject a foreign substance into your body. And I'm not here to say that, uh, you know, vaccines are good or bad. Or that's not what I'm here to say. I'm just here to prove and to illustrate the overall concept of what they are doing. Now, whether this is intentional or not, I don't know. But the net result is still the same. And that's that we now have a society here in the United States where people are far more receptive 
to doing things that they would not have dreamed of doing in 2019. And Australia is a fantastic example of where that can lead. That we're a year and a half into, we'll call it the Cervasa sickness. And they have quite literally turned New South Wales into a totalitarian police state. And the rebuttal there is always going to be, well, you know, it's, it's for safety. It's, it's for security. Well, there's, George, don't you know, there's this pandemic we're dealing with. Well, right. But what that ignores is a cost-benefit analysis. So let's just say that, that by turning the entire country into a prison state, that that saves 100, 1,000 lives, whatever it is. Is it worth turning your country into Stalinist Russia. And I, I know that a lot of people think that I'm exaggerating there. And I, I got, you know, I, I sent out a tweet the other day that I probably shouldn't even mention, but I, I will because I just bring it up, bring it up because I don't care. I don't care. And uh, it was really just, it wasn't a literal question, although I said serious question at the top because I wanted to get people's attention because I think it's something we need to think about. But I said, where would you prefer to live right now? in Australia or in Afghanistan. And, you know, I got a lot of heat for that, but uh, I, I, it, it's, I wanted to use it as a thought experiment where uh, most likely, uh, you know, you would prefer to live in Australia. But, I mean, think about that. Think about that. You know, th- th- it would be horrific to live in in Afghanistan at any point in time, especially right now. But isn't it also horrific to live in Australia right now, especially New South Wales is what I'm referring to specifically. They're only allowing you to leave the house for an hour, for one hour a day. That's your quote unquote recreation time. And then what they're saying is if you go out and get the vaccine, well, now they'll allow you an extra hour of freedom every day. Those are their words, not mine. They used the word freedom. I didn't just insert that. So and my point is if Australia is there right now, what's to say that they won't be where Afghanistan is in 10 years or, or maybe even sooner? You see, you're boiling the frog very slowly. That's my point. And if once people give up a little bit of their freedom, they give up more and more and more because they see things as just going back to normal the way they were in 2019, that this is just temporary. But what they don't realize is you give the government an inch and they're going to take a mile. And if you give them that that freedom, you're never going to get it back. And even if you think, that what they're doing right now is worth giving up your freedom for. Just keep in mind that when the next guy gets in office, the next gal gets in office that you hate, that you detest, when they, um, when they implement rules and regulations that you completely disagree with, they are doing that because you gave the government the entity, the power to do that in the first place. So all of these rules and re- restrictions that you're in favor for, if, if you fall into that category, that power is going to be used against you in the future. 
And people just, they, they can't get their head around that for some reason. So uh, uh, what I try to do on Twitter is point out that, that not that, that I'm anti-vaccine or vaccine. Uh, listen, I'm not anti-vaccine at all. What I'm anti is anti-government mandates because that's where we're really giving away our personal freedom. This should be a choice that people make based on an individual's risk and reward, which is different for all of us, right? So to have the government come in and say that you have to do this is just completely, completely insane. And then the justification that they use makes no sense. And every single time you look at this, whether it's coming down from the CDC or a a local government official, you have to come to the same conclusion. And that's the, to what you said at the beginning, this is not about health. I'll give you an example. They always talk, uh, Walensky just came out and said that uh, she advises for people who are unvaccinated to not travel over the Labor Day weekend. But, but she doesn't give it any nuance, right? So let's think this through. If you've done any homework whatsoever, you realize that having had the cervasa sickness in the past, you build up antibodies, you have natural immunity. Now that can fade after six months, eight months, we don't know, but the bottom line is, but so can the vaccines, right? So the same benefit that you have for the vaccine, you receive the same benefit for having had the cervasa sickness in the past, having natural immunity. And some would argue that the natural immunity is superior as far as benefits to the actual vaccine itself, right? So if we're really being honest, and if this is truly about health, what what Walensky would say is that she advises unvaccinated people who have not had COVID yet, right? But notice she doesn't say that, right? And then she would also add further nuance. She would say, I advise people who are unvaccinated, who have not had COVID yet, and I also advise vaccinated people who got vaccinated more than six months ago, if people fall into that category, right? Because we now know that a lot of these vaccines, the efficacy really trails off after, let's say, six, seven months, right? But the fact that she's just using this blanket statement, again, proves that this is not about safety. It's not about health. It's about something else. And I'll give you another example. I'm here in Arizona. They've got these signs that go over the road, and usually there's barking at you about drinking and driving. That, that's what these signs always are. I, in fact, I think they usually say, uh, like, drive, uh, buzz, get nailed, or something just condescending and ridiculous like that. But uh, now, every single one of these things, and it's not like they're just here and there. You, you see them every two miles when you're driving on I-10 or 51. I believe they're on I-17 as well. And, and now they're saying... Uh, something to the effect of get the shot to end they use the word end covid it's it's and, very and, i have it up here it's very it's very catchy it's your shot to end covid-19 get vaccinated there you go so what we what we know is that we could be at 100% vaccination rate and you're not going to end covid why because you can still transmit the virus that the vaccinated people can transmit the virus. 
So you can't get to that herd immunity. And it's not just me saying this. Obviously, this is the research from a lot of people that even the 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 the, the CNN watchers will, will say, <laughs> even the scientists that they go to, right? Uh, the the people who believe in science, even they're saying that it, it's most likely that we cannot get to herd immunity with vaccines because they transmit the virus. That's why Walensky came out and said that people who are vaccinated still need to wear masks. Right. So my point is the state of Arizona knows this. And if they don't know this, then why the hell are we listening to them in the first place? Because a third grader could get that information on Google. You see, but they but my opinion is they know this, yet they still blatantly lie to you in order to manipulate you to do X, Y and Z. So if they're blatantly lying to you again, this proves that it's not about health. And at the very least, it proves to you that you shouldn't be listening to what they're saying, that you should be thinking on your own because for the simple fact that they not only contradict themselves, but they blatantly lie to you. You And 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 now it's getting to an extreme where you're seeing all these, we'll call them CNN watchers, that are, 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 uh, you know, putting out these memes. I, I tweeted one, I think it was yesterday, where it, they've got a tombstone that says uh, 2021, and then the quote is, I did my own research, right? Implying that if, if, if you're dumb enough to actually use your own brain and use critical thinking, that you're going to die. And then I saw this article on Forbes the other day as well, from Forbes, for heaven's sakes. And I'll actually read you the headline right here. It's, you must not do your own research when it comes to science. So you see, what they're telling you is that, number one, you're just too stupid to think for yourself. So you just need to obey everything the central planners and the government tells you to do, or else you're going to die. That's the point where we are in the United States right now. Oh, I mean, you mentioned uh, Australia. It's getting to, like you said, it's getting to a point where it's scary. And it it is overtly about control, in my opinion. So I am one of those unvaccinated people with natural immunity who've got COVID. Uh, And I've been thinking, like, if I go to New York, I don't even have the potential to to get like an antibody or t-cell immunity test to to go into places i need to be vaccinated or i can't so it's about right and you have the exact and you have the same benefits as someone that is is vaccinated especially if you got the uh covid within the last six months or so yeah and it's insane and like you said they're, they're the slow roll of hey do this and we'll give you your freedom back. You know what? Actually, we need you to do this as well. Like the, the model of slowly giving individuals more and more carrots in which they, they end up in an open air prison like they're at in Australia. Seems like it could be coming here. Uh, but it's a very good model that it is, they plan on replicating on other things. And that's a, probably transition us into the meat of the topic. Why I want to speak with you is the Great Reset is you see how effective the uh, ability of the state and the experts has been to basically cattle herd everybody to do whatever they want over the last 18 months. Now they're applying it to different areas. So Justin Trudeau came out a couple of days ago. We're going to replicate our response to COVID-19 to attack climate change. It's like, what does that even mean? How do you replicate like the response to COVID-19 to tackle? It, it means climate change lockdowns. 
Yeah. The, I mean, that that's where this goes, or the, one of the places where this could go. I shouldn't say that so definitively. But that's one place where this could go, especially when you look at the World Economic Forum and their great reset agenda. You know, a lot of it is about climate change. And I'm not here to say that climate change isn't real or anything like that. I'm just saying that the, 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 a lot of the people who are pushing the climate change agenda don't care about climate change. <laughs> no. Trust me. Uh, you know, what they care about is power. And, uh, you know, if they need to sell you on climate change in order to get that power, that's exactly what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but this is, you know, that that's a, a, a big part of the whole uh, client or the whole Great Reset initiative and agenda. And if, if you look at, um, you know, you, you can just see this playing out. I'm sure they're going to go back and get all the CO2 uh, and carbon emission data from 2020 and say, oh, look at this. Yes, we had to deal with some lockdowns. And yes, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't great. And we had to make some adjustments. But now that we're on Zoom and now that we can just see each other online, you know, the world is a better place. And look at what it did to carbon emissions. We're saving the planet by locking you in your house. And see, another way that I think they'll most likely sell this to you and really guilt you into this and and where it's going to go, it's going to go to a civil war. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. You know, we're getting so divisive. And if you look throughout history, and I'll, I'll go over this and we'll shelf that for a moment, but, but you know, you can, you people are taking sides and you don't even have to ask someone's political affiliation anymore. All you have to do is just look at their face. You see, and so what they, what they, you, but you can see, let me get back to my point here, but you can see them, uh, you know, in uh, 2020 say that, oh, well, you're locking yourself in the house to save grandma. That, that's the message, right? You're locking yourself in your house. You're turning yourself into Howard Hughes, essentially, to save grandma. Well, now what you're doing is you're locking yourself in the house. And you're never going outside. You're never driving your car. You're, you're just uh, becoming someone that lives virtually online to save humanity. Because we all know that if we continue driving our car, if we continue to go outside, if we continue to enjoy life, if we continue to do the things that make life worth living, then all humanity is going to go the way of the dinosaur within 12 years. You know, Just ask AOC. Right. So isn't that an easy transition just to to guilt people into, uh, you know, just staying at home and just having more and more control over their daily life and just micromanaging them? And it all goes back to power. Right. Like, why? Why do they want this power? It's very creepy. And, and it, but look at history. Look, 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 I, I've, I've done my my very best because th- I tell you what. Uh, you know, I've looked at a lot of economic history throughout my life, uh, just doing my whiteboard videos and just, you know, I became obsessed with macro in, in 2012 when I retired. Prior to that, I didn't know anything about it. But especially over the last year or so, when I've just been trying to, to figure out what is going on in the world, I've tried to really look at uh, just human history. And if you go back and look at, uh, I mean, Rome is a fantastic example of this. Just non-stop war. Just non-stop. And last night I was studying the Ottoman Empire. 
Again, non-stop war, just constantly, constantly, constantly. And they would take over, uh, you, know, you know, they would take over uh, a, a certain territory and then, you know, a week later or a month later, they'd regroup and, oh, let's go take over that territory. Let's go take over that territory. The, the, the limit on certain people's insatiable lust for power it, it, it knows, knows no boundaries whatsoever, right? It, now, for some people, and I'm not saying all of, of humanity is like that, but, uh, you know, the Ottomans specifically would, would have this kind of, I don't know if you want to call it an evolutionary way to handle the problem, but it, it's, it's what, what they would do is uh, whenever a sultan died, uh, you know, he would, it would, the, the throne, if you will, would go to his son. Well, if there were more than uh, one son, it's just whichever son killed all the other ones, <laughs> that's who would be the leader. So you're narrowing it down by people who, again, have this insatiable lust for power. But you see, we're doing the exact same thing today in a different way. And, and, and let me explain what I'm talking about. So the bigger government, get, or I should say the more power that government has, the more it attracts sociopaths. And it is true that the person that you like could be in power today, but tomorrow, I guarantee you, or in a year or in five years or in 10 years, there's a much higher probability that that sociopath gets into power. Why? Because if the government didn't have power over other people, it wouldn't attract that type of person in the first place. Because if you're someone that wants to rule over others, if you have that, that, you know, that hardwiring in your brain, like a dictator, like Stalin, like Mussolini, then you're not going to apply for a position where you don't have power over people, right? So if we just had the same government, let's say this, if government was the same size as it was prior to the Federal Reserve, and I'm measuring that by government spending as a percentage of GDP, right? So back then it was right around three to 5%. Would we see the same type of sociopath that we see today in politics? And I'm talking about the right and the left, right? And, and go back throughout his, go to Germany in uh, 1933. We all know who won the election back then, right? Would that person have even tried to become the ruler of Germany if the German government had the same amount of power and control as the American government did prior to uh, the Federal Reserve being set up? I would guess no. Because again, if your objective is to control other people, you're not going to apply for that position of president if they don't have any control themselves. You see, so that's what we're doing. The more power we give the government, the higher the probability that we get someone whose true ambition is to be a dictator, to be an authoritarian, to turn the entire country into what we're seeing in Australia, which is a totalitarian police state. Yeah. And we're seeing it extend beyond like the politicians too, like the Fauci's of the world, uh, like the medical experts that like to go on CNN and, and have their thoughts heard and the fe continue fear mongering. So they keep coming back and coming back and are able to spread those. 
Exactly. Let me give you another example. Again, let's go back in time. Let's look at history. Let's look at George Washington. Right. As soon as he got done basically cleaning house on the British and illustrating what an incredible leader he was and how intelligent he was, he did what? He retired. Yeah. He went up to uh, um, what was his place up in uh, up in the north there. Um, I can't recall, but he, he went and basically wanted to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want to deal with this. You guys pick your own president. You do what you want. It's not for me. And yeah. you, you, you literally, and then they, you know, they got the constitution and think prior to the constitution, you know, the states were breaking apart and it was a big mess even after they, they won the war. So then Washington went down to help them to really kind of manage the uh the writing of the constitution and try to manage the 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 debates that were going back and forth and to be kind of diplomatic about it right because everyone saw his, him as such an amazing uh leader and uh, <clears throat> excuse me and then after that they they of course wanted him to be the president of the united states and he said no he didn't want to do it they had to twist his arm just to convince him to even run and finally, he's like, well, okay, I mean, if we, do a, if we do a vote, if I get in a certain percentage of votes, then fine, I'll do it. I mean, you literally had to twist the guy's arm, right? So I would encourage every one of your viewers or listeners to ask yourself the question, do you think you'd have to twist Joe Biden's arm to run? Do you think you'd have to twist Nancy Pelosi? Do you think you'd have to twist Mitch McConnell or any of these people? Absolutely not. They would sell their own grandmother uh, you know, down the river just to get another term. They would lie to you. They, in fact, they do lie to you. What's the obviously that's a great qualification of becoming a politician is you have to be a fantastic liar, right? These people just tell you whatever it is that you need to hear in order to get your vote. And like I always say, if you think the politicians have your best interest as their priority, you're lying to yourself more than they are lying to you to get your vote in the first place. These people don't care about you. They care about power. And again, you know, so many people go out there and try to say, oh, we need to fix government. We need to do this. We need to do this. We just need to get better people. In government. No, that's even if you get that, it's only going to be temporary because of the size and the power it has in the first place, like what we were saying before. So the only way to make government better is to make government smaller. That's the solution that we should be thinking about. And we're doing the opposite right now. Yeah. Completely agreed on all fronts. And it's gotten to a point now, like, all this has been made possible the last 18 months specifically is because there's been an, a, a roar of complacency for decades, right? Like Joe Biden, career politician, Clinton's career politicians, Nancy Pelosi. Like we have all these career politicians who have been in positions of power for decades. And uh, as United States citizens specifically, like we've just allowed this sort of power structure. Yeah, and, and compare their integrity and character to that of George Washington. Yeah. That tells you everything that we need to know. That, that we need George Washington in office. We do not need 
the list of characters that you just mentioned because that's the 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 road to serfdom right there i can tell you for sure so then the question becomes how do we get more george washingtons and it's just you got to reduce the size of government and how do you reduce the size of government i guess that's the question and it may be so a big theme on this show recently has been monetary reset like a, a lot of there's if you zoom out and look at everything that's going on with covid elections black lives matter cyber pandemic uh afghanistan could it be viewed through a lens of these people who want to maintain power uh are just trying to force us into monetary reset the and that would come with vaccine passports that are apps that double as cbdc wallets that uh, include social credit scores and all these forces pushing you into this digital panopticon which you are beholden to the whims of of those in power those who have control of the app and and the functions within it um yeah again it it goes back to controlling your life yeah at at every level it's it's micromanagement is really the best phrase that i can use and you hit the nail on the head it's all these things combined that will factor into your social score and uh, just like what we've seen in china you know your ability to fly your ability to get on a train your ability to uh, get a lower interest rate your ability to get a mortgage uh, in and of itself will most likely be tied to your social score and your social score will be an accumulation of all the transactions that you're doing daily uh, because all that's going to be recorded in a centralized database because your account is going to be at the Fed when they go to a central bank digital currency, assuming that's what they do. And there, there are no certainties, but I think the probability is extremely high. So they're going to determine how much beer you buy. They're going to deter, they know if you buy a gun. They know if you buy gold. They know if you buy Bitcoin. And obviously, nobody buys gold and Bitcoin unless you're a domestic terrorist. (laughs) And if you're a domestic terrorist, then why on earth should you be allowed to have a bank account? So we've got to get you out of the banking system. So now you're a non-bank entity. And then the the problem there, I think, is then, then how do you buy Bitcoin? Right. And that's why I've, I've, you know, I've been bullish on Bitcoin for a long time. And as far as I don't see it as a inflation hedge and I don't see it as insurance, I see gold as a completely separate asset class. Um, but I, I liked it as a speculation because I thought the uh, upside was attractive relative to the downside. I thought it was a very asymmetric bet. And I understood the, the libertarian arguments for Bitcoin and sound money and all those things. But now I think it's just at a completely new level where I honestly don't even care about the price of Bitcoin. It, it's uh, for, uh, I shouldn't say that. Um, that's not the priority for me. That's not what I find interesting. I don't think that should be your number one priority in owning Bitcoin. Let me see. I think that's a better way to say it. Your number one priority for owning Bitcoin is because in the very near future, you could be completely excommunicated from the banking system. And therefore, how do you, how do you take your, how do you transact? Well, you know, what do you do? Assuming they've banned cash. And what do you just barter, uh, 
you know, carrots that you grow, uh, you, you borrow, you know, some diesel fuel that you've been able to find. I mean, what do you do, right? It could be your only way just to, to, just to sustain life, right? And we're seeing that these uh, vaccine passports could be, and hopefully they won't be, but they could be applicable to uh, flying, to be able to get on a plane. You know, we had that senator from Brooklyn uh, submit the bill where he thought it would be a good idea to have this no-fly list for people who uh, haven't been vaccinated. And if they do that, you know, what's to say that they won't uh, come up with another law that ban people from coming into the United States, including American citizens, who haven't had uh, the, the shot, right? So it gets to a point where, you know, do you want to, there's effectively a Berlin Wall around the United States, because if you leave, you can't come back in. And that sounds kind of just nonchalant to say that, but if you really think that through, what that means is that if you leave the country, you're never seeing your family again, ever. Think about that. You're, you're never going to see your family again. And I, again, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, uh, that's not a prediction, uh, but I just want, if you look at the world around us and see the direction it's going, that's the direction it's going. Now, hopefully we can get off that road to serfdom let's say, and it's been done in the past, you know, that I, I want to remind your viewers that the whole reason Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom was out of a counter narrative to the mainstream narrative that was prevalent at the time. And this was just after World War II, right? Because a lot of people in society were saying, well, my goodness gracious, we used all this central planning to beat the Germans and the Japanese or whomever. So why on earth shouldn't we use central planning to run the economy. Look at how efficient we just were in this war, right? So Hayek saw the, the problems with that and said, whoa, 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 time out. I need to write a book here to make sure that people see the other side of that coin. And that was his rationale for doing that. Now, I, you know, I don't know if he moved the needle, but the, the, the bottom line was we were on the road to serfdom back then and we got off as Americans. And uh, we... I, I, I want to believe that we haven't, I want to believe that we're not at the point of no return, but in order to do that, people need to understand the urgency and they need to understand how important it is that we open people's eyes as to what is going on around them and that they, they've got to read the story of the Berlin Wall. They've got to read the story of what happened in uh, Stalinist Russia. They need to read the accounts of, and I'll try to keep it YouTube friendly here, the, the, the specific group that was targeted in Germany in uh, the 1930s. You know, a, another tweet that I put up the other day was from a, a documentary where they interviewed some of the, I believe it was some of the uh, Hungarian uh, Jewish folks that were living in uh, Germany at the time or, or something like that. It was some of the, the Jewish folks that were living in uh, Germany at the time. And they, they asked them, they said, listen, why didn't you leave? Or, or why didn't you do something? I mean, couldn't you, you, you see what was happening around you? And they said, yes, we could. But every single time they came out with a new restriction, we just thought to ourselves, you know what, this will pass. It's just temporary. This will pass. And it wasn't temporary. It didn't pass. And it got to a point where they were too late, where they couldn't leave. 
They couldn't change. They had gotten on the road and they couldn't get off, you see? And that's what we need to understand by studying history, that it's, it's, it's better to be a day early, or excuse me, it's better to be a year early than a day too late. Agreed. And that's why I'm very happy that we're having this conversation. The reason that I wanted to bring you back on is just to get this message out there, because I know you've been leaning into it on your YouTube page very heavily, because it is imperative. And I think that's another thing that I've been trying to highlight in my newsletter and on this show is, is how do we combat that? How do we have people realize what's going on and, and the mm. need to to backtrack. And I think we just need to point out the hypocrisy of everything that the experts have forced on us, the logical inconsistencies and, and ridicule them. We need to ridicule how dumb these people are, how uh, power hungry and lustful they come off, how evil they, they seem to be when you actually dissect what they're saying and what they've done up to this point. I mean, the logical inconsistency mask, the server has to wear one. You have to wear one from the hostess stand to to your table. But as soon as you sit down, you're you're three feet above ground instead of yeah. Because when you're eating, you can't spread COVID. I, yeah. I guess you didn't get the memo right. Yeah, and then vaccinations like what's going on in Israel right now, the highest uh, penetration of, of citizens vaccinated. And they have an all time high in cases. Like, is, is this vaccine even working? Is it making things worse? Like, is is that possible? And the money printing as well. Like, so that's another thing talking about history. And another very interesting thing. That's another contributing factor. That was a contributing factor in the Ottoman decline as well. Well, it was the devaluation of the currency. That and like, so this is like a question that popped in my mind as you were explaining um, like what's going on in the world and, and this lust for power and all the restrictions that they're forcing on it. How much is it uh, the the thrusting of, of restrictions and control on citizens because of how much they know they've lost control of the financial system specifically. And so when I look at what the reaction to COVID, uh, it reminds me a lot of the Weimar Republic. It's not the exact same, but after World War I, uh, the Weimar Republic owed war reparations to, to France and the other uh, powers of the day, and they weren't able to pay it back, and France came occupied the Weimar Republic and the leaders of the Republic were pissed off. And the way the French wanted to get their reparations was to essentially take the money that was being made from the factory. So the Weimar Republic leader said, Hey, don't go to your factory job, stay home. We're going to print money and give it to you. And it's not the exact same, but it's very similar to what happened last year with the, the lockdowns. And I noticed uh, you tweeted yesterday, Hemingway, uh, the Heming famous Hemingway quote, and how'd you go bankrupt gradually then suddenly? Um, are we experiencing that in the Western world? Like not even the U.S. alone. I mean, just well, I think you, I, I think you just touched on a very interesting point, and um, so l- let me expand on on kind of what you're saying here, and maybe I can connect the dots. So, what most people don't realize is, and I don't, I haven't heard anyone do this research, and I just did it for a whiteboard video. Uh, that comes out today because I hadn't even thought it through. But when we, you know, the, the people that kind of understand Austrian economics and, and, and understand, I would argue, economics in general, um, they realize that what we saw in 2020, as far as the decline in GDP, let's say, uh, and the stock market and, and, and all the other, you know, whether you want to call it a recession, depression, whatever, but uh, we understand that that wasn't necessarily a result of 
the Cervasa sickness or the government's response to the Cervasa sickness, that the underlying economy was incredibly weak. And the only thing is structurally unsound, to say the least. And the only thing that the, the lockdowns did was just to expose the underlying problem. That was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And we can see that with you know the repo spike in September 2019, as an example. And I'd like to remind everyone that the Fed reversed quantitative tightening and started doing quantitative easing prior to 2020. You know, remember when Jerome Powell was saying this is not QE, when of course it was exactly QE, right? So if the economy was so healthy, if it was booming, as Trump told us, then why on earth did we need to have rates artificially low? Why did we need to have rates, I believe, at 1% until they dropped them to 0% during the surveillance sickness? Why did we need to continue to do QE? Why did we need the Fed's balance sheet, at call it $4.5 trillion? if everything was hunky-dory. And by the way, why was the federal government having to run trillion-dollar deficits? This was in 2019, not 2020, if the economy was on sound footing. It's an obvious answer, right? And so what happened, and just like your point you made, that the seeds of the hyperinflation were sown in 1914 when they started printing money to go to World War One, But we didn't see the effects of this inflation or the the significant effects of this inflation until 1923 in Weimar Germany right so but the seeds were sown way earlier so a lot of people think that the 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 uh, inflation just came out of nowhere in 20 in 1922 and 23 and that's not the case you got to take it all the way back to what they were doing in uh, in 1914 right and it's the exact same thing today with the economy and what we're seeing in the decline, that it, it's not just what happened there in 2020. You got to go all the way back to 2008, because that's where the seeds of the economic distortions were really created. I mean, you could go back to the 1990, but that's when we started quantitative easing. That's when we started these huge deficits that we've just built on today. but and, and that's where we got more government regulation. That's where the government and the central planners became more and more intrusive in financial markets and therefore in the real economy. That's when this financial economy started to grow and grow and grow and just completely take over the real economy to where now the real economy is completely dependent upon the financial economy and asset prices. Right. But my point is, you can take that all the way back. The seeds were sown long before 2020. And most people think that the economy was just booming. And the uh, example that I'll use to prove my point, if someone doesn't believe me, go back and look at the Spanish flu. Right. And this is what I was saying that nobody has done. And I, I really can't believe they haven't. But you go back at the, Sp the Spanish flu and look at what happened to GDP during that time. You know how much GDP went down in the United States during the Spanish flu? No idea. Approximately zero. <laughs> and you know what the government did? You know how many stimmy checks they sent out in 1918 and 1919? Same zero. number, zero. Right. So the government, I don't know what the government deficit was, if they had a deficit, but I, I would doubt that they did anything uh, for the Spanish flu, which we know is, was 
far worse than the Cervasa sickness. So now fast forward to 2020. And in March of 2020, the GDP from peak to trough went down by approximately uh, 10%. And that's with $4 trillion of deficit spending. If we wouldn't have had that government, uh, that $4 trillion, GDP would have been down by 20, 25%, right? When during the Spanish flu, it was down by approximately 0%, you see? So it's not the, it's not the Cervasa sickness that really caused the economic downturn. That might've been the straw that broke the camel back, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But what caused the economic downturn was the structural flaws in the economy that were a result of the distortions from the central planners going all the way back that created the malinvestment and misallocation of resources. That all the Cervasa sickness did is just expose that. And the proof is in the pudding when you look at the Spanish flu. Pretty crazy to compare the two, considering those facts, like 0% GDP fell 0% and they handed out no money. And it's, I mean, obviously we had a productive economy back then. We actually built stuff and- And, and the debt levels, yeah, that's a great point. And the debt levels, you know, back then, do you think, well, we, we know what uh, government debt to GDP was. It was incredibly low by today's standards. But what do you think the corporate debt was back then? I mean, what do you think personal debt, the balance sheets looked like of the individuals? You know, do you think that they were at all time highs where everyone's just levered to the hilt? just borrowing as much money as they possibly can? I mean, absolutely not. Absolutely not. What do you think the savings rate was back then? You see? So th that's why you don't have a, a significant economic downturn, because we actually had a healthy economy, uh, for heaven's sakes. And, and by the way, that was right after uh, World War uh, One. And then what happened in uh, right after we, we got out of the, the Spanish flu is we did go into an economic depression afterwards, afterwards, after they had recovered, they ironically went into an economic depression that uh, nobody ever talks about. And the headline numbers were just as bad as they were in uh, at the beginning of the 1930s and whatnot. But the government did zero. They did nothing except for I think they might have even spent less money and increased interest rates. And that uh, economic depression lasted approximately a year. And then you had a true V-shaped recovery to come right back up. Why? Again, not the government intervention. And the economy was far more healthy uh, or structurally sound, I should say, uh, than it is today. It's funny because everybody, uh, <clears throat> this is how everybody likes to uh, shit on Austrian economics particular sound money advocates as they say the gold standards the reason why uh the depression was as bad as it was the the 1930s depression everybody likes to, to reference but they always forget that 1920s depression where uh, things were done completely differently and the, the recovery was much quicker right uh, which is a uh, an interesting fact of history that a lot of people like to gloss over but with all this being said all right the, the powers that be they want more control we are barreling towards a terrible dystopian future with a digital panopticon run by these central bank digital currency slash vaccine passport slash social credit score apps um are you optimistic that we can turn it around like does all of this need to hit ahead do we need this financial calamity to actually happen for people to lose enough confidence to then walk away from the big government and begin 
starting parallel systems. I mean, Bitcoin, gold, whatever it may be. I want to be optimistic and say that that yes, that we can. And and there there are no probabilities. There are, excuse me, there are no certainties. There are only probabilities. It's just a it's a matter of you know what is the probability that we can get off this road? Is it is it ninety percent? Is it five percent? Um, that said, going back, if you look at the collapse of these empires, the Ottoman Empire, the one that I was researching last night, is a perfect example of that. You you come, it takes you back to the the quote about hard times making strong men. Every if you look at the Roman Empire, if you look at the Ottoman Empire, the majority of these. If you look at what's going on in the United States, going back to the 1800s or the early 1900s, or uh, you know, compared to where we are today, it's the same thing over and over and over again. Where these uh, these uh, civilizations and one of the components of their collapse is that saying, and it happens over and over and over again. That's at hard times create strong men strong men create good times good men excuse me good times create weak men and weak men create hard times and then it's just that cycle over and over and over again and uh you know again looking at the ottoman empire that's exactly what happened there they you had the the guy that started that thing was unbelievable as far as the the strength and the leadership qualities that he had. And it got up to a, a climactic point, and then they made some changes with how they do some things. And then sure enough, you got the bureaucracy in there, and then the the guys you know, became soft, and they, they just didn't want to. There was a lot of things that went into it, but it, it's, it's the same thing. The, the men became weak because the, the, they had created a civilization that was so powerful, that was so rich, that it made them soft. And because of that weakness, it brought on hard times. The whole thing collapsed. And of course, that collapse, and it takes you right back to the beginning where that's going to create the strong men uh, that will rebuild and create the good times again. And it's just that that process over and over and over again. And so you, if for those of, you know, I was born in 1973, and uh, for those of, of your viewers and listeners that were born around that time or, you know, even earlier, uh, it, you have to see the exact same thing playing out right now in the United States. Just ask yourself if this current and I, I don't want to you know rip on this current generation or the kids today or anything like that. But Mike, I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. Uh, you know, were, were the kids tougher, uh, for lack of a better word? in the 1970s, the 1950s, 1960s, than they are today? I mean, that's the no-brainer question of all time. You think TikTok stars aren't tough? Listen, I always tell the story. When I was a kid, nobody, I mean, nobody wore a helmet riding a bicycle. Nobody. And I always say, that, and this this is the honest to goodness truth, with a group of buddies that I had when I was a kid, if you would have shown up on your bike wearing a helmet, 
it would have been far more dangerous for you than not wearing a helmet because you would got the shit beat out of you by every single one of your friends. <laughs> they would have said, what are you doing? And they would have literally punched you in the head, right? But nowadays, you can't even let your 15-year-old out of the house without a helmet on or with a razor scooter or you're, you know, you're going to be taken away to jail or something like that for bad parenting, or they're going to take your kid away from you. Or now what they're doing, you know, you see the judge in Chicago that's taking away the gal's parental rights she's not- uh, just because she didn't get the, the, the vaccine. So now she's no longer fit to be a parent, right? That, that's where we are in today's society. But you, you can see that, that and again, I, I hate to throw a whole generation under the bus, and there's some great, great, amazing young people out there. But as a whole, society is just far, far weaker today than it was, you know, just a, a couple decades ago. I'm not going to refute that as a 90s baby. I, uh, I can certainly uh, see Exactly what you're saying. It's true. I mean, these kids are soft as baby shit these days. And uh, yeah, and, and, and it's and it's, I don't want to say that it's their fault either. It just goes back to the fourth turning. If you if you look at Neil Howe's book, he breaks down the generations into groups, and the generation, uh, the Gen Z, I believe it was, it is that was born after I think 2000. Mm-hmm. They they were just way 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 overprotected. Uh, for a lot of reasons that were just, you know, that, that were outside of their control. And then another thing, too, that, that uh, the, the younger generation has to battle is they don't have any influence on them that knows anything about history above and beyond what happened two weeks ago. And this is a, a fascinating point that I heard from Jonathan Haidt. He's the, the gentleman that wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And he pointed out that, uh, you know, when we were young, and I'm saying people that were born in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and whatnot, it is true that we had TV. But the TV programs were really influenced by people who were 60, 70 years old or 50 years old, you know, people that, that knew the history of the 30s and the 40s, because that's when they were born, right? So, so they, they had a grasp, uh, a personal relationship with history, you see? And, they, and, and you could see this in the programming. I mean, you, you don't know, you probably don't know this, but in the 1970s, the Oprah of the day, the, the big, huge hit uh, talk show, daytime talk show, was a show called Donahue. And the guy that did it was named Phil Donahue. Mm-hmm. It, real liberal guy, but he was sharp, very, very sharp, very objective. And, you know, he wouldn't have, uh, you know, parents beating the shit out of each other because this gal uh, cheated on the guy with, you know, her girlfriend or just this Jerry Springer type nonsense. It was nothing like that. He would interview people like Milton Friedman. He interviewed Doug Casey. He interviewed Ayn Rand real intellectual powerhouses of the day. And he would have, you know, he'd really try to have these in-depth conversations with them. This is what was on at four o'clock during the afternoon. This is what Americans were watching. I would challenge you guys to turn on the TV 
you know, to CBS or NBC or whatever, and look at what's playing today at three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. I mean, it is utter garbage. It, it's just, it's just human garbage on there. And so Jonathan's point is, you know, back then with the Donahue show, you could really see the influence of people who are 50, 60 years old. But now you see, we don't, no one really watches TV anymore. The, the, the people who have a connection with history, a personal relationship with them, they're really not creating the news at all. Now you could argue that that's good. And uh, for, uh, on a lot of counts, I would agree with you, but the bottom line is the people that are creating the news that is that are that's being consumed by the younger generation are the, the kids that, that don't have any connection with history whatsoever. They weren't there when the, the dot com bust. You know, they weren't there during the the, the Black Monday in 1987. They weren't there during the stagflation in the 1970s. They weren't there when we went off the gold standard. They weren't there during World War II. You know, they weren't there when the entire world was attacked, other than the United States, you know, was attacking freedom and liberty. They weren't there when Milton Friedman won the, uh, the, the Nobel Prize in 1976. You know, they, they didn't have any of this connection. All they know is what has happened, let's call it in the last two weeks, because if, it's not, if it didn't happen in the last two weeks, no one's ever going to see it on TikTok. No one's ever going to see it on Facebook. No one's ever going to see it on Twitter, right? So there's this big disconnect with the younger generation and, and history that we haven't seen. And that's a big problem because it's like, I, who said that? Churchill, I believe. And it's just, it's so accurate that if you don't uh, understand history, then you're doomed to repeat it. And, and we're seeing that happen right in front of our own eyes. Yeah. And I don't want to bash the Gen Z too much, but like, again, you, well, it's not it, their fault. It, no. It's not their fault. It's just, uh, they're just a victim of circumstance. And there's some uh, incredible young people out there. It's just when you're looking at, at generations, you know, whether it's the baby boomers or, or uh, Gen X, which I think is, is my generation, the millennials or the Gen Z, you, you know, you can see these broad trends with or, or broad uh, attitudes within the, within the group and they make a difference they make a big difference i agree that's what i was just going to go as a millennial somebody born in 91 i was 10 when uh, september 11th happened then i was 17 when the great financial crisis went down and it was very impressionable moments in my life and if you're in generation z you're one when 9 11 happened in eight when 2008 happened and you may Listen, not that, you see, that's a great example. Let's go through that. Let's just dissect that. Just using the, some anecdotal evidence right here. You said you were 10 years old in 9-11. Mm -hmm. Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember the day vividly. What, what happened? We were at school. I was in fifth grade, Miss Falkenstein's class, and uh, it was in South Carolina at the time. Yeah. Um, and I just remember the teachers being really odd that day. Um some of them allowed their students to figure out what was going on. Mine didn't. So there was like this weird uh, split in the school. You could see walking through the halls, like lunch and other classes that some kids knew what was going on. Others didn't. I didn't know until like literally the last period of the day, I asked to get on the computer to look up something for, um, for class. And I just wound up being like, what the hell is going on? And then my mom picked me up. She was crying. 
uh, my uncle was working like right down in Fiatai, so she was visibly upset. And um, then obviously going home after school and seeing everything on the news. Pretty yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember where I was in Minneapolis and I was there um, and we were we had this startup and it wasn't my business. I was working for the two gentlemen uh, that, that owned the business and I was helping them. And we were supposed to do uh, closing sales that day. I was helping them sell and we had uh, you know probably 10 appointments uh, of people coming in. And um, I remember on the way to work, just turning on the radio on the drive and hearing what was happening. And I was obviously just in a complete state of shock. Um, I didn't even, it was tough to process. And then when I got into the office, you know, everyone had it. Uh, we had a TV in there and everyone was kind of huddled around the TV watching the images. And I tell you, what, I will never forget that ever for the rest of my life. It was just, it had such a massive impact. It was so profound. And I remember like it was yesterday going to the two guys who uh, owned the business and just saying, what, what do we do? Like, how do we handle this? And they were in a state of shock as well. And they just said, there's nothing we can do. We, We just have to continue to move forward. Uh, we, we, we have to do what we otherwise would have done. We, we, we don't have a choice. And I remember having to power through the day. Um, it, it was just so bizarre and it was, it was, it was incredibly difficult, but you see my point there is that we, because we are at two different stages in life, we had two completely different experiences over nine 11 right? And because I was, well, I can't, how old was I at the time? Probably, oh, what was I, late 20s or so, 30, something like that. But uh, no, it would have been probably 28 years old. Yeah. Um, but since I was an adult at that time, I remember when Bush came out and started talking. I remember when they implemented the Patriot Act, as an example, ironically called the Patriot Act. And I remember how everything changed as far as the TSA, as an example, when they had the Patriot Act. And I remember how the Patriot Act led to FATCA. And I experienced that because I've been, as you know, living overseas for quite some time. So I saw this domino effect uh, that really took away so many of our freedoms as a result of. 2001. And then, of course, as a result of the government's response to 2001, that it, it gives me, I think, a much different perspective. And I think someone that was, you know, 40 years old, old at the time would have had a much different ex- uh, perspective as well. When I see them coming, them, the government coming out with these restrictions, and all I see is the Patriot Act just okay. replaying in my head over and over and over and over again, meaning. If we lost that much freedom in 2001 that we never got back, mind you, we never got that back, right? How much freedom are we losing today that we will never, ever get back? And it's just going back to our original point there. It's just I don't think that that this younger generation that didn't go through that or might not remember it as vividly as you do. Uh, they, they can't appreciate 
what we're living through in 2020 and 2021 and what is at risk. That's, that's the, the main takeaway. Agreed. And, and I think, especially considering what happened in Afghanistan over the course of the last few weeks, it provide like it provides an opportunity for people to highlight like look how hypocritical it is like they passed the patriot act they erected the tsa you get molested every time you walk through an airport and you, they privacy now has a negative connotation they're surveilling you your communications right. everything dragnet across the board they're tracking you on social media they're banning free speech if you if you don't um if you don't uh, fall into what's considered good thing uh, but all this was done under the guise to protect you from the terrorists who were coming to take your freedom. They're coming to attack you again. And fast forward 20 years, the, the product of that is a war where trillions of dollars were spent. Uh, nothing was accomplished. And the U.S. government uh, just armed the Taliban with $85 billion worth of weapons and military-grade equipment. And, it, it did and now it could jeopardize the dollar. Yeah, as far as the world reserve currency status, because you know, think of that the, the macro impact there of of what happened. I mean, obviously, the United States looks terrible. Look, looks uh, they look like their our military is utterly incompetent, right? So if we if you're Saudi Arabia and you're like, okay, well, I've got this deal with the United States where I'm going to price all of my oil in dollars. And what I get out of the relationship is I get protection from their military. Well, all of a sudden that protection isn't worth as much or whether it's perceived or not, the value of that protection isn't worth as much today as it was three weeks ago. (laughs) I can tell you that because think about that. If you're someone, if you're a country that is relying on the U.S. military for your protection. Right now, I'm shitting my pants. Yeah, <laughs> just honestly, you let and so uh, army I'm looking 70, at seventy thousand people other, who are living in caves. Yeah, I'm like, and and I and listen. I, this is nothing against our uh, the heroes that we have in our our military. You know, my father was a veteran. He flew planes in World War II. He was shot down three times. I have a tremendous amount of respect. I can't even articulate the amount of respect I have for people who serve in the military. But but regardless, what just happened makes us look incredibly bad. It makes us look weak, and it makes us look as though we are incompetent. So that's just the optics of it, regardless of the, the reality. So again, if you're that country... You know that's relying on the U.S. for your your uh, security or or military power. You know, all of a sudden, you, you, it it is what it is. You're going to be looking at other options and saying, "Hey, Russia," uh, and I'm not saying they're doing this, but you know, you you've got to think that this is a possibility that they're being like, "Hey, Russia, you want me to dominate some oil and rubles? You know, what type of uh, protection can you offer me from your military?" Uh, and and there could be several countries that are looking at different options and the whole world changes. I mean, we have been under this in this system. I'm talking about Bretton Woods and then the petrodollar for decades and decades and decades. And we just assume that whatever has happened in the past is just going to continue to happen indefinitely in the future. But we're seeing it all potentially completely change right in front of our eyes. And it's like the quote, I believe, I, I don't know if it was Marx 
who said this. It, it might have even been Lenin. I think it might have been Lenin. But uh, it, it, I'm sure I'm going to butcher it. But it was something to the effect that, um, you know, there's decades where nothing happens. And then there's weeks where decades happen. And I think we are in a time right now where, where we are seeing decades play out right in front of our eyes. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking wild to think about. Um, yeah. yeah. It's heavy. And it's like, who's going to step up? Is it China? Is China the next hegemony? Like, are we able to transition back to a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard? I think Bitcoin provides great uh, opportunity to, to actually break free from this all-encompassing global state, if you will, whoever is running the world economic forum and the think tanks that affect policy uh, across the western world particularly us and europe um can we break free the one thing i'm excited about here in the united states and we weren't talking on it directly before we hit record but i think it, what we were talking about highlights that is that this uh, assertion via states um of their own autonomy florida texas arizona uh, Tennessee, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, uh, these states sort of also recognizing, hey, the federal government doesn't have their shit together. Um, so we're going to pack it in and, and we're going to we're going to we're going to take care of things ourselves. We're going to we're going to take care of our own in these smaller borders. And, and hopefully um, that is a, a trend. That was one silver lining of 2020 that I picked up on. That completely there. agree. Completely agree. The thing that people have to be cognizant of, though, uh, is food. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with my good friend, Chris McIntosh, who is uh, one of my partners in Rebel Capital's Pro. He's a hedge fund manager uh, that, that really gets deep into, into macro. That's how he makes a lot of his decisions is, is kind of a tops down approach. So he's thinking about this stuff nonstop. And he is relentless in his in his research. And I, you know, he's stuck in New Zealand right now. So he's looking at the world, trying to figure out where to go to maintain his level of freedom as well. He's in the same boat as all of us. And I was talking to him about where I might go after Arizona. And I said, you know, Chris, I just, it, it all depends. I, it's tough to make a decision right now because the world is just in flux. And who knows what it's going to look like in six months time. Uh, you know, a country that looks great today could look terrible in six months or, or potentially vice versa. And I'm like, I'm thinking about maybe going back to Florida because out of all the states, you know, to your point, they've handled it well. They seem to be making some decisions where they're prioritizing freedom over safety. And he says, yeah, you're right. The problem with the United States, though, is that this food supply chains are so consolidated that that's his concern. And so what that means is, for, and for Americans, I, I don't think they really grasp this just because, uh, and I didn't really grasp it prior to uh, spending a lot of time in South America. Was there like five slaughterhouses across the country or something like that? Major ones? that I didn't talk to him about the specific numbers, but that's the concept where the, the majority of the food that is produced is, let's say, produced, I, and I don't know this specific number, but let's just say it's produced by five corporations. Right. The majority of it, obviously, there's farmer, little farmers markets here and there, but the majority of it. So if you're in uh, Florida, you know, the, the majority of food that you have access to is being grown all over the United States and shipped in 
just in time, you know, with these extremely efficient supply chains that we have created. Well, juxtapose that to something like, um, I've spent a lot of time in Ecuador, as an example. And when you go into Ecuador, especially in certain, loca uh, certain locations, um, you can go to a, a place where literally 100% of the food that you have at the little grocery stand, is it rarely a store, just a little grocery stand on the side of the road. And you know, I'm talking about every single fruit, vegetable, uh, meat you can imagine, milk, dairy products, everything. All of that is produced and grown within three or four square miles of, of where you are, right? Where here, yes, we have these huge farms, but you go to like Kansas as an example, and you're not going to see any uh, walnuts being grown. You know, you're not going to see uh, watermelon or blueberries or anything. You're just you're going to see corn, 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 wheat, wheat, corn, 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 right? Well, in other parts of the world, they they you have a farmer, but he doesn't grow just one thing. He literally grows like everything, <laughs> you know, that you see in the grocery store. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent with Plan B, but I think that's something that uh, people in the United States really need to think about. Not that they need to lose sleep over it, but if they're contemplating a, a Plan B, I think in the United States you need to be far more cognizant of uh, food supply chains and how few corporations actually control the majority of the food in the United States, and then ask yourself how easily it would be to, for a certain entity, let's say, to manipulate the producers of that food. You know, the more you consolidate power, let's say it was just for a thought experiment, let's say it was just one corporation that produced all the food in the United States. Well, then all an entity say the World Economic Forum, uh, would have to do is figure out a way to, we'll say, influence just that one corporation. And then they would be able to influence the decision-making process that would apply to 350 million Americans' food that they eat daily. And then you contrast that again with a country where the food uh, supply is completely decentralized. And people who are, um, you know, fans of Bitcoin should really appreciate that uh, because, listen, you want your money decentralized, but you want your food supply decentralized as well <laughs> for the same uh, reasons. <laughs> a big, uh, no, believe me, there's a big contingent of Bitcoiners. Actually, I've had a gentleman by the name of Untapped Growth, Joel, his first name, he's doing a, a huge regenerative farming movement with cattle. Um, he's trying to bring more cattle and small cattle farming uh access to to individuals via like uh, these structures in which you can basically own live cattle and get the meat delivered to you in kind as as the herd grows and the the cattle mature and all these topics are on top of bitcoiners mind like and it is a very uh you know let me i'm sorry to cut you off there let, let me just make another point here that because I've been giving a lot of thought as to how we can move the needle. You know, we talked about that earlier. What can we do to, to really make a difference? You know, I, people, your viewers or listeners probably listen to you and they say, well, my goodness, you know, he's got such a huge platform that sure he can talk about this stuff. And, 
but or George has you know uh, three hundred thousand subscribers on his YouTube channel and does all these interviews and all this stuff. So sure, he can uh, make a difference by spreading the message. But what can I do? I'm just the average Joe, the average Jane. I don't have a YouTube channel. I don't have a big podcast. But but and I've actually been putting a lot of thought into this, and I think the first thing that people need to do is they, they need to understand that the population, in my opinion, is divided into thirds. So you've got a third of the population that really might agree with you, or uh, you know, if you're someone that really believes in, in freedom, or you might believe in strong uh, sound money or decentralized money. Um, and then you've got a third of the people that no matter what you do, no matter how many facts you give them, they're not going to change their mind. That, that CNN viewer, that diehard CNN viewer, it, it doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter what you tell them. It doesn't matter how convincing your argument is. You're not going to change their mind. It, it doesn't matter how many times Fauci lies. It doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter how many times the CDC contradicts themselves. They're still going to buy everything they say hook, line, and sinker. It just doesn't matter. They they would they would just walk off the 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 cliff with the lemming march, regardless of what you say. So you're you're just wasting your time with those people. But there's a group in the middle, a third, that they might be you know they might not be into Bitcoin. They don't really understand gold. They don't understand history. They don't really understand freedom. You know, they're just trying to live their life for heaven's sakes. They're taking their kid to soccer practice. They're trying to play golf on the weekend. And yeah, there's some crazy stuff going on, but you know, it's temporary. I I just want to live my life. But when they look around and they look at what's happening, you know, prior to the cerveza sickness with the deficits and the, and the, the repo market, if they heard about that, or maybe all the money printing, they, they, they viscerally feel that something just isn't right. And now, especially, they're looking around with all the stimmy checks and everything that's going out. I'd say, saying to themselves, how can this not have a downside? Right? And that's the group that you need to target because they're receptive to the message of freedom and the message of liberty and the message of Austrian economics, sound economic principles, and sound money. So how do you reach that person? Well, if you just sit there and bombard their Facebook news feed with how stupid they are for listening to Fauci, you're, they're just going to ignore you. They're going to give you the finger and just say, eh, screw you. You know, you're just being a dickhead. So I think a, a better approach would be just to maybe introduce them to Ron Paul's channel. You know, Ron Paul is still out there creating a, a, a tremendous amount of content. And Ron Paul is just someone that is so likable, right? You, you agree with him or not, you, you got to like the guy and you have to respect his integrity and his, and, his, and his character, right? So just maybe introduce them to some Ron Paul videos. You're not beating them over the head about how stupid they are and that, that they're just a, a sheeple or something like that. But you just give them that that message through Ron Paul and, and use that as kind of a gateway drug. Another thing that I, I wrote down is introduce them to Bitcoin. And I think out of all the, the, the good things that Bitcoin does, this might be the best. And, beca- and I, I, I'll give you an example of when I was at the Bitcoin conference in June, right? Uh, there were, whatever, 15,000 people there or something. And I... I, I 
can assure you that a lot of those people that were there that understood the value of sound money, they understood the value of decentralization and freedom. They only understood that because initially they were turned on to Bitcoin because they thought they'd get rich. Mm -hmm. It's just, it is what it is. You know, they, they didn't know anything about Bitcoin. They didn't know about cryptocurrency. They didn't know what the dollar was. They didn't know what the Fed was, but they saw Bitcoin going up and up and up and up and thought, holy cow, I can get rich by doing this. So they came onto it for all the wrong reasons, but they ended up staying for all the right reasons. It's the freedom money, baby. That's right. So, but see, now they understand ec uh, Austrian economics. Maybe they've been introduced to Ron Paul. Maybe they've been introduced to Mises or Hayek or maybe Rothbard, something another, like that. Another, uh, another individual uh, who's old talks and modern interviews I like to send is Thomas Sowell. I think he's a, a great- My favorite economist right? of all time, Thomas yeah. Sowell, Milton Friedman, right? Maybe they go down that path, but it was just, it, but if you would have given them Milton Friedman right off the bat, they would say, oh, nah, what are you talking about? Milton yeah. Friedman. He's holding a pencil in my mind. In my yeah, mind. exactly. But you, you introduce them to Bitcoin, and now all of a sudden, that's the gateway drug that introduces them into the, to the principles and the concepts that are so important that we've been talking about through this entire video. I, I put gold. You know, same type of thing. Introduce them to how important sound money is. Uh, just the macro stuff that we talk about. I, a very simple thing that you can do is go and, and just Google Mises crack up boom. And you'll see an Investopedia article where there's one paragraph where or Mises describes the crack up boom. And it is exactly what we're going through today. Just share that with your Facebook friends or share that with your friend and family member, Fred, as I call them. Um, and, and see what type of response you get. You never know. That could take them down the path that really opens their eyes to where we get that third in the middle to come over to our side to where now we've got the majority to where we can all stand up and fight for freedom, which at the end of the day is the only thing that's important. Because no matter how much Bitcoin you have, no matter how much gold you have, no matter how much stock, no matter how much, quote unquote, money, real estate, it doesn't matter if you don't have freedom. Yeah. We'll do you nothing in the gulag. So that's right. <laughs> you gotta get these. I think that's incredible advice. Try to reach that reachable third uh, of the country. And I think, I think another, like, uh, you're probably too modest to say this, but your YouTube channel, like, push, if you're listening to this, push people towards George's channel. He's putting out great, incredible content. And the way you do it with the whiteboard and in the visual manner, and you're very articulate, very well researched. I think it's an incredible resource. Um, and I, I think it's doing a good job of actually waking people up. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think it's a good end it on this note, some positive, optimistic, actionable advice. Sounds good. Hopefully people got some value. I think, <laughs> there. I think they definitely did, George. Uh, I can't wait to do this again. All right. Likewise, my friend. All right. Have a great day. Peace and love freaks. Okay.